Good morning. My name is Phil Rankin. If you don't know me, I'm the newest elder on the elder board as of March. And I feel privileged that Ken is allowing me to fill in for him today as he's down with Patty enjoying uh, their grandson's baby dedication. So Finn's getting dedicated today, and that's why Ken's not here. Um, so uh, just a couple of business items that I'd like to do with you as a congregation to encourage you about uh, things coming up. And we already mentioned the ministry fair in the back. But I want to encourage every single person to walk through there and look over those things. Why? Because we've added on there a place for you to pray for a ministry. And we know not everybody here is going to sign up for every ministry. Um, But I believe that if these ministries are not bathed in prayer, they will not be successful. And so even if you are not going to participate in Awana or help in the nursery, you can pray for those things, right? And we need that. We desperately need that. So everybody should be going back there. See how the Holy Spirit leads you into what ministry is going to be your care and your concern and your burden to support. We need that. Secondly, um, next week in your bulletin, you saw about... Uh, we're going to have a different format for our service. Ken will still uh, be vacating the pulpit, but I think he might still be here because he wants to see what we're doing. Um, but uh, I, by the way, thank you for those encouraging songs, Josh and Mark. Um, but how many of you feel like worship just ended? And now some guy's just going to get up there and talk? No, worship doesn't stop because we stop singing or responding. The word of the Lord is given to us. That's a form of worship, and we respond to the word. That's a form of worship. And so next week, our format will be very different, so we don't want you to be surprised or upset. We're going to have a reader's theater as we go through Psalm 119. And that's a long psalm, so it'll take us quite a while just to read through it. Um, But in Ezra chapter 8, it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded to Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. It was a long service. And they read it in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book and in the sight of all the people For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. You don't have to stand next week, it's okay. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, and Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All it was was the reading of God's word, and what was the response? Amen and Amen. And they bowed and they worshiped. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. That's our hope for next week, to let God's word minister to you 
in a unique and powerful way. So we encourage you to come for that, and don't be surprised, it will be different. So Today, though, Ken has been taking us through the Psalms, and uh, I hope you've been enjoying that. And he gave me the privilege of doing the next Psalm in the series, which brings us to Psalm 41. So um, I thought I might have an insert for you today, but it didn't happen, so I'm going to read this for you, Psalm 41. You should have your Bibles out or your electronic device to look at some of these things as we bring them up today. But it says, <clears throat> to the choir master of Psalm of David, oh, by the way, if you skip down in your Bible to the end of Psalm 41, the next Psalm is Psalm 42, correct? Is there something that it says there before Psalm 42? Book two, yeah. We're at the end of book one today. So Psalm 41 is the end of book one of the first five books in the Psalms. But here, this Psalm is the Psalm of David. It's the ending of book one. Blessed is the one who considers the poor, that's the weak or the powerless in, in the original language. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. And the literal translation there is you turn all his bed. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. Literally, heal my soul, is what it says. For I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, or they speak evil things about me. When will he die and his name perish? They want his name to be blotted out. No memory of him at all. And when one comes to see me, of these nice people, <laughs> when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. In other words, they're devising and plotting, they're scheming against him. They're devising evil against him. They say a deadly thing, literally a thing of Belial in the original language, is poured out on me, or poured out on him, giving the idea that it's, when you pour something on you, it kind of drapes on you, it clings to you, it, it, you absorb it, and so it's attached to him. Uh, so they say a deadly thing is poured out on him, and he will not rise again from where he lies. So what are they thinking? They're thinking he's a dead man. Even my close friend, literally, in the original language, my man of peace, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me, which is a picture of betrayal. We'll talk about that. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me, or be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay, and the word there is actually requite. We'll talk about that in a little bit, or it means to bring about peace. That I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. 
but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And what's the response at the end? Just like in Ezra. So we come to the end of the book. I don't know about you, but we all, I do. I like story endings, usually. Even some of the surprising ones, like Thanos, just surprised me. I just don't like Thanos if you're a Marvel uh, Universe person. Um, but here we are, we're at the end of the book. Why, why was this book placed at, why was this chapter placed at the end of the book? Now you realize that Psalms were a compilation that were put together after the Jewish temple and the Jews were taken into captivity, the Jewish temple was destroyed and the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon. But now the temple's been rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah and they're coming back and they need something for their worship services in the new temple. And this is what's called the second temple. That's what we have in our Bibles today. We have what was compiled at that time. And so Jewish scholars feel that this was put, the Psalms were put into five books in a semblance of the original five books of the scriptures called the Pentateuch. Have you heard of that? The Law of Moses. That's what Ezra read from. And so the original Pentateuch was God giving instructions to the people of Israel. Jewish scholars feel that the Psalms are a, a second Torah, or Pentateuch, and five books. That is where Israel gives praise back to God. And so what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with the second Torah, so to speak, and it's the people's praise back to God. So why is this particular psalm placed here in this first book? I believe that this psalm was placed here for a reason. Notice the connection, if you have your Bibles open, to the end of Psalm 40, which Ken talked about last week. There's a connection between that last two verses and the first verse of Psalm 41. So in Psalm 40, it says, in verses 16 and 17, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor or weak and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The psalmist in Psalm 40, as Ken pointed out last two weeks ago, is um, somebody who is in need of compassion. And where does he get that compassion from? He gets it from God. So in chapter 40, the psalmist describes God as the one who is compassionate on the poor and needy person. And David, in Psalm 40, is identifying himself as the one to receive God's compassion. He is the poor and needy soul. So now, in Psalm 41, what does it start off with? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. What did God just do? He considered the poor. And now, David is almost giving an instruction to us in Psalm 41, or to people who are reading the psalm, or who are worshiping through this psalm, and claiming anybody who is compassionate is blessed. And so David, in Psalm 41, I think there's that connection. God is blessed, he's compassionate. We will be blessed if we are compassionate. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. 
the Lord delivers him. Who is it that the Lord's delivering? The compassionate one. So in Psalm 41, David actually is identifying himself as one who gives compassion, but in the fact that he gives compassion, he is still somebody who is in need of receiving compassion because the compassionate person is the one who needs to be blessed. There's a little play on things there, isn't there? So in Psalm 41, in verses two and three, it says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Who's him? Well, according to the verse above it, it's the one who has compassion. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the well of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed, and in his illness, you restore him to full health. Oh, man, I don't know about you, but to me, Psalms are weird. <laughs> They're just so different than anything else in the Bible. And I love them, but at the same time, they frustrate me sometimes. They're, they're weird in a good sort of way. As Josh was saying, we identify with them, especially in the emotion part, but sometimes they just don't make sense. Or sometimes it's hard to follow the logic that's in them. And we have to understand that Psalms, as a form of worship in the original language and with the people of Israel, they were songs, they were poems, they were prose. And we don't treat them that way sometimes. And it's hard sometimes to read poetry and prose because poetry and prose often press words and ideas or language into a deeper meaning than what is generally used or what is generally meant by those words or language. And so sometimes there's things that are hidden or hard to see if you don't see the connections. But things get intensified in poetry, right? You can say a lot with a poem, almost as much with a four stanza poem as a two page letter, right? Have you ever experienced that? And so this type of language intensifies and takes on greater significance at times. But with Hebrew poetry and prose, there's always a pattern, there's always structure, and there are rhythms. And so it's not just free-flowing thought. It's not just, I feel this, so I'm gonna say this, and then I feel this, and I'm gonna say that. There's a thought here. There's a reason why Psalm 41 was put at the end of the first book of the new Torah. So let's explore that today. Verse one, blessed is the one I said this already, that the psalmist is identifying someone who gives compassion. And then he gives himself as the example through his own experience as the compassionate one who then is receiving the blessing for being compassionate. That's verses four through 12. And then uh, at verse 13, we see what's called a challenge to doxology or a challenge to praise. And that's what we're going to close with today. But going to the beginning, in verses 2 and 3, we see where he talks about being a compassionate person, but even though he's a compassionate person in this world, and he says, as, as for me, he's going to get to the point where he says, as for me, he's giving an example of what it's like to live in this world. And so verses 2 and 3, 
we see that he's, what it's like to live in God's blessings. He said, blessed is the one. It's interesting that there's th- only three psalms so far in the psalms where it starts off, blessed is the one. And we'll talk about one of those in a minute. But we're looking at what the life is like for the compassionate one. And the first thing we notice in 2a is that there's protection. He is delivered. The Lord protects him. There's this deliverance from evil or harmful things that occur. And the blessed one, in a sense, has a a shield or a refuge. That's what gives us protection. Does that mean that there's not things coming at us? No, there are. But we have some protection. So it's the first thing we see about being under God's blessing. The second thing in verse 2b is there's preservation. There is this this sustenance or this provision. He he keeps him alive, it says. And so it aids in the living. The blessed one has a resource, or as we're gonna see, a, a nurse. And God describes himself elsewhere in scripture as a nursing mother. Um, So he's giving life. That's part of his blessing. The next thing we see about being in the blessing is there's prestige. In 2C, it says that you do not give him up to the well of his enemies. In other words, there is this temporal, here and now provision of blessing of a sort of um, bringing in prosperity in one's doings. Now don't freak out about that word prosperity. What I mean is prosperous in what you're doing, not necessarily amassing riches. And I connect that with the blessed one of Psalm 1, right? The other, other place that's really familiar for us, blessed is the man who, and you go on down in the middle of the Psalms, and it says, and he's like a tree whose roots are firmly planted by streams of living water and that everything that he does will succeed. is prosperous. It's not about amassing riches, it's about being successful in your life. And the person who's under God's blessing finds that. It's not necessarily amassing riches, but it's talking about your reputation. Your reputation will be good if you're under God's blessing, because all that you do is good. And so when we talk about prestige, we're not talking about a worldly wealth. We're not talking about worldly position. We're talking about your reputation and having security in the position where you are at. The fourth thing we see of living in God's blessing is prevention. Do you notice anything here? Got an alliteration going. That's what all good preachers are supposed to do. Letter P on all of these. In 2D, we see that the evil plans of the malcontents will not reach you. You'll be rescued from their plans, from their schemes, from all those things that they say are, they are trying to do to you. You do not give them up to their will. And so being in God's blessing means that the blessed one has security. And living in God's blessing, finally, in verse 3, sees that we have persistence or patience. It says, the Lord sustains him on a sickbed, and in his illness you restore him to full health. Now the, 
original language, I told you, is he turns all his bed. And that's the idea of that when you've been in bed, you, the pillows get uncomfortable and everything, and especially back in, in their time, what was required was to turn the bed over or to like fluff the pillows if you've ever had somebody do that. It's the idea of somebody, the nurse coming along and taking care of you, and you are now well enough to get up out of the bed and we're gonna fix your bed. And so there's this idea of restoration, there's this idea of <clears throat> being able to <clears throat> make it through the time of affliction and have the ability to bear up under the burden that you were under. And now you have comfort. So these five things we see in those first three verses as David describes, this is what happens to the one who is living under the blessing of God. And then David turns it upon himself. And he puts, makes it personally. And he says, but as for me. So he started off talking about somebody who's blessed because they're compassionate. He says, what, this is what happens to a compassionate person. This is how God blesses them. And then he turns in verse four and says, guess what? I'm it. That guy who's in the bed that needed his pillows fluffed up, that's me. That's what verse four, that's the structure here. It changes. And so now he starts to say, what is it like, even though I'm a compassionate person, even though I'm seeking God's blessing, what is it like for me to live in a sinful world? And we see him explain what's going on in his life. And so verses four through nine, we first notice in verse four that he's dealing with soul distress. Some translations uh, read, uh, heal me, but the real original language is heal my soul. And so he's having soul distress of the whole person, but the inner person especially, as you see what he's talking about of why he needs to have his soul healed. Why? What, what happened? Well, he says it's because of my sin. It's the consequences of sin. He says, I have sinned against you. And so the consequences of sin include for us the weaknesses that we have of the flesh, the things that attack us and tempt us to sin and to go against the Torah of God that he has given us. And so we have soul distress that David is dealing with. Now we're not exactly sure at what time this psalm was written by David, but because of some of the things that are going on here, we do know there's a time when he was sick. Because the next thing we see in verse eight is physical distress. And because we know there was a time where he was in physical distress, and probably connected some soul distress to it, was when he was having trouble with his son Absalom. So this is probably sometime around there, if you go back and read in 2 Samuel 7 and 8, um, you'll see that this possibly is describing how David was feeling at that time. And he, at this time of writing of the psalm, was dealing with physical disease and maladies. So much so that his enemies could come, possibly even his son Absalom, could come and say, into his presence and say all sorts of things that he wanted to act like he was being nice, but really was wishing he's gonna die. And he would come, it says in the psalm, they would come to the room and they would be all nice to me, but then they would go out and they would be, I hope he dies. 
Isn't that what you get from there? He says, he will not rise again. They wanted him to die. So he obviously had some sort of physical distress going on with him. His soul was distressed. His body was distressed. And so often we find for us that those two things are linked, aren't they? But there was a lack of strength we find in David because he was living in a sinful world and he was a sinner. And the third thing we find is emotional or relational distress. I've already kind of led my hand on that, but we see it in the attacking and the scheming or the opposition, even in the idea of betrayal, he says. And that's the idea of the heel lifted up against me. See, the idea of, in Hebrew euphemism, it's the idea of the horse lifting up its heel to do what? What does a horse do when he lifts up his heel? He kicks, right? Here's your beast of burden who's supposed to be helping you, and yet he turns and he kicks you. That's betrayal. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying the betrayal of a close, professing friend. This isn't the enemy. This isn't the the, um, Philistines out there who are doing that to him. This is somebody who's so close to him. In the original language, he says, my man of peace. This is somebody who I've been at peace with, who I have spent time with, that we dwell together in peace. In fact, it says we're dwelling together in peace so much that we share food across the table. Kind of gives us a picture of something that happened in the New Testament, right? Does Judas come to your mind? Here, David is saying, this is a result of living in a sinful world. I will have soul distress, I will have physical distress, and I will have emotional and relational distress because I live in a sinful world. I need God's blessing. I need God's compassion. So my distress list for you, it's not on a slide, but you might wanna write these down. This is the distress list that comes from living in this world. Affliction, Trial, pain, sorrow, regret, depression, disease, and death. Is there anybody in here that doesn't experience any of those? We need compassion. So, David has identified himself as somebody who needs compassion. And where does he run to? Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17, right? He runs to the God who he's already discovered is compassionate, and he says, I'm gonna live under God's grace. And so we get down to verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, be merciful to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. Wow. Wow. What is it that David is looking for? He's looking for inner renewal, to be raised up. When you're sick and you are renewed on the inside out, from the inside out, you are raised up. In all those ways that David is needing to have compassion, the psalmist experiences an inner renewal from the Lord. Where do we find that kind of renewal. 
Our inner renewal is found in Jesus Christ. Inner renewal brings victory over outer chaos and inner distress. Let me say that again. This is one you should write down. Inner renewal brings victory over outer chaos and inner distress. David finds that, but I think Paul kind of had a picture of that as well in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he's encouraging the Corinthians, and he says to them, knowing that he who raised, what is David saying God does? Raises. He who raised the Lord Jesus will, what? Raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Man, this really goes along with Psalm 41. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you get that connection there? That David is saying, God, you can raise me. You can give me inner renewal. And we know, looking back with the help of the New Testament, that that inner renewal comes only through Jesus Christ. And today, if you're dealing with outer chaos and inner distress, the way you're going to find inner renewal is to come to Jesus Christ and be raised up with him as he has been raised up by God through the trials and sufferings that he himself experienced. And as we do that, we join the psalmist back in Psalm 41 in pleading to God to raise us up with whatever you're facing today realizing that there is a sense of God's love for you. Because in verse 11 of Psalm 41, the psalmist says, you delight in me. God delights in you if you are his child. God delights in you if you are the compassionate one. By this I know that you delight in me. The person that the enemies ostracized, the person that people are accusing now has acceptance demonstrated in his life because he's being blessed by God, because he's willing to be the compassionate one to cry out to God and say, I need your grace and your mercy. The next thing we see living under the blessing is a vindication from shame We see that in the second part of verse 10, connected with the second part of verse 11. In 10 it says that you upheld me that I might show them, um, that I might triumph over them, that I may repay them. And again, the word repay is not a good English translation. Immediately when we think that, we think revenge. And I don't think we're in disagreement with the psalmist and saying that I want things to be right, I want things to be at peace, 
but I don't think he's saying, I'm gonna get them. Please, Lord, raise me up so I can get them. That's not what it translates as, so that I may get them. It's in order that I may make peace about the situation. And think about it, if the psalmist is David, David is the king. If somebody's being treacherous and betraying the king, does the king have the right to pronounce justice upon them? Yes. And so as God is blessing David and as he's being raised up in his position, he is now being able to execute his authority. And so I don't think that this is necessarily that we're looking for God to help us get people back. That's not being compassionate. I think it's more of David or the psalmist saying, help me be at peace with the situation. Let's help me make peace out of this situation. And so in the act of restitution, humiliation of the enemies becomes evidence of the fact that the petitioner is heard and healed by a gracious God, allowing the person to partake in the community of worship and in communion with the members of God's family and with Yahweh himself. Just the fact that all their, their plots, their schemes, their words, that he's never gonna get up, and then he gets up, just shows that the shame is gone. The vindication is there. Their plans didn't work. Their hopes were dashed. And God brings victory to the petitioner. And the fourth thing we see is that when we're under God's grace, it results in the ability to see God's glory and to sense his presence. And we even read that in 1 Corinthians 4 that we would be aware of his presence with us. And so it says in verse 12 that I will be set in your presence. And he's been saying this all through the Psalms. Haven't you felt as we've gone through the Psalms that a lot of them are just, let's repeat the same thing over and over again? (laughs) And it's almost that way with Psalm 41 until you get through the structure and see what's going on here. He comes and now he says, again, you're gonna set me in your presence so I can see you, I can experience your glory and know that you are with me. He says it in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 21.6 says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 23.5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. In Psalm 31, 20, he says, In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. What David, what the psalmist is experiencing in God's compassion as he deals with life and as he tries to remain a compassionate and godly person he, re- he experiences a release of God's grace in his life because he is committed to the compassionate ones. God is committed to the compassionate ones. That's what Psalms 41 is telling us. God is committed to the compassionate ones. He's also committed to those who are in need of compassion, those who need to have the ability to stand in the security of God's power and love. 
And then we get to this grand finale of book one, verse 13. They call it a doxology. But before I get to the doxology, I want to give you three theological twists. We are talking to the elders and deacons were meeting yesterday, and I was telling them, you know, I love theology. Um, so I have to give you three theological twists on this song. Number one, God will bless people, but we should be seeking to bless him. If you compare verse one to verse 13, the end result. Number two, second theological twist. Although much of my trials stem from my sinful performance, God's presence in my life is based on my faithfulness in trusting him, not whether or not I perform perfectly. Let me say that again. Much of my trials stem from my sinful performance, but God's presence in my life is based on my faithfulness to keep seeking him. Isn't that what David did in Psalm 41? And thirdly, God deals with us as we deal with others. Psalm 40 ended with God's compassionate one. Psalm 41 says, blessed is the one who is just like God. And so God deals with us the same way that we deal with others. In fact, he says that in Psalm 18, verses 25 through 29. Verse 25, with the merciful you show yourself merciful. This is talking about God. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So the challenge at the end of the psalm is can you praise God in the situation that you're in? Can you say I'm in need of God's compassion and still bless God no matter what you're facing? How Cooper's doing that. John shared a little bit about that in Education Hour. But a doxological challenge is as God is blessing you through his grace and compassion, And that all that you face, that while you are poor and needy, as you face affliction in your day-to-day living, will you be able to find the victory from the inner renewal that only God can give, that only Jesus Christ gives against the outer chaos and the inner distress that you're facing? Will you be able to join with the psalmist and render the blessing that the Lord deserves? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.